You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Peace be with you. Also with you. My name is James Fields. I'm serving here as his lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. It's indeed a great privilege and pleasure to be able to stand before you on this great day. Um, would you guys stand with us um, as we read God's Word? We're going to continue in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at um, two parables, um, excuse me, three parables uh, this morning. We'll start in Matthew chapter 13, looking, starting at verse 44. Can be found in your program if you uh, have it. If not, please encourage you to open your Bibles um, and be there with us. We want you to have your Bibles with you in hand if, as, as, um, as you're able so we can read and, and look at God's Word together. But if not, that's okay. Look at the program. We'll uh, go on uh, nevertheless. So starting at verse 44, Matthew 13, starting at ver- verse 44, we'll read to verse 50. Um, And just hear the voice of the uh, word of the Lord as it's read to you. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worst, worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the, the evil from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be reaping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you uh, pray with me? Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you um, that you are a good God and king. We ask, Lord, as, as we always do, that, Lord, you would take my little and make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. I pray, Lord, that um, minds will be transformed and souls will be saved for the advancement of your kingdom. We stand in awe of you. And, Lord, even in sickness, Lord, even um, in not maybe feeling the best today, we, we proclaim with one voice that your name is still worthy to be praised. So, Father, help us. Help us, Lord, in our inadequacy. Help us in our weakness to praise you and to glorify you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I remember it um, like it was yesterday. It was the first time I lost cool points with my wife. It was our honeymoon, 2017, in sunny, sensational San Antonio, Texas. We were walking along the Alamo, the Riverwalk, and aimlessly through the streets of downtown San Antonio. And then I saw him, Eric Snow. (laughs) Now, to you, that name may not mean much, but to me at this time, it meant everything because approximately 15 years prior to this, this meeting of him or seeing him, I submitted an essay in my fifth grade class entitled Fire and Ice, which was attributed to my two favorite college basketball players at the time, Eric Snow and Sean Respert, who played for Michigan State. And my, and, and my friend immediately, actually Brad Walker was there with me, he immediately reminded me that the Cleveland Cavaliers were in town for the NBA Finals. And I shamelessly uh, squealed, 
And, me, and then I immediately went into stalker mode. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but yes, I went into it. I forgot who, where I, what I was doing. I forgot where I was. I forgot the romance that was in the air. And after screaming his name from across the street, I casually followed him, thinking that maybe he would meet me, lead me more to more NBA icons. And sure enough, my shameless stalking led me to the, the liar of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And seeing that it was well secure with security, I did the most logical thing I thought possible. I shamelessly hid in nearby bushes to get a glimpse of LeBron James. Now look, we take a lot of risk and we do a lot of crazy things when we see a great opportunity before us. Your opportunity may not be Eric Snow or having an opportunity just to see um, LeBron James in person. But whenever we see an opportunity, um, we, take, we take great risks um, to take hold of it. See, I'm not bemoaning the cost of opportunity to meet Eric Snow. For me at the time, what I had to sacrifice was worth it. Now, the constant, don't, you can ask my wife about this story. She'll, she has much, a much funnier version than I do. But it's, it was worth it for me, at least so I thought. It was an opportunity I cannot pass up on. And you see, this is what Jesus is getting after in these two short parables. He's talking about opportunity. You see, when Jesus says, we are to count the cost before you become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, this is what he has in mind. What we, what, what we think of when we hear count the cost is looking all that I have to give up, all that I have to leave behind. Even how terrible this may be or how horrible it may be or my life is going to be. All the jokes I continue to receive even after 13 years of marriage. But here's the reality. No one becomes a disciple bemoaning the cost. No one becomes a disciple bemoaning the cost. You only become a disciple when you understand and you take hold of the opportunity. Today in our text, we have three parables that reveal two large truths. The first truth is this, that the kingdom of heaven's value is priceless. That the kingdom of heaven's value is priceless. These two short parables in verses 44 through 46 are related. There's a common theme here. Someone finds a treasure that causes them to reorient their lives. Look at me in verse 44. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, circle in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. You see, in the first story, the treasure is buried in a field. And Jesus doesn't tell us why this treasure is buried, nor does he reveal any details about the person who found it. However, this situation wouldn't have surprised anyone in the first century, as people always buried stuff in the fields all the time. Now, they buried it for various reasons. One of the main reasons they could have buried things was to keep things from obviously being stolen. There were no banks at the time. So if you had anything of value or a large sum of money, or if you had personal possessions that you wanted to keep secure, you would normally put those things in the ground, where only hopefully you and maybe trusted individuals would know. The second reason why you might bury something is your family has to leave suddenly. They might bury their most valuable possessions to keep them safe until they return. Or finally, sometimes someone buries a treasure 
and they forget that it was there and someone else finds it. We don't know the specific uh, circumstances that how this guy found it, but we know that he found a treasure that was not his. And this treasure had a holistic impact on this man. It impacted his head, his heart, and his hands. With his head, he assessed the value of the treasure with his mind and saw its worth immediately. With his heart, he believed that this treasure was worth more than anything else that he owned or had in his own possession. And with his hands, he went and sold everything that he had and bought that very field. It's implied that the owner of the field is clueless to the treasure being in the field. And notice what Jesus said. In this man's joy, he goes and sells everything that he has. You see, those, this is a good reminder for us this morning, that those who are part of the kingdom of heaven have immeasurable joy. Amen. Not happiness, but joy. You see, happiness is based upon one's circumstances. It's based upon what you possess or what you have. But joy is based on having the greatest gift that God has ever given us, his son, Jesus. And they have found what they know with their mind and with their heart that this treasure is above any and, any and all other treasures that can be found. This treasure of all treasures, cause them to, to reject all other treasures that may compete with it. I love this. One of the things that I pray for as a ch- our church each week is that we will be a ch- church that's marked by joy. That even in our sickness, even in our hardships, even when we may not understand what the circumstances that God is allowing to happen in our lives, that we still can have a measure of joy, Amen. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's a a fruit, and it's outworking of the present reality of Christ living in your life. Jesus reiterated this point um, in this next parable. This time, it's not a man who stumbled upon a treasure, but it was a merchant who is searching for a fine pearl. Now, let me pause and say, there, there are always two ways for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. One, we either stumble upon it, the kingdom of heaven, when we weren't even thinking about it, as if in this first parable, or we are aware of our need of God, but we don't know where to go to find him, and yet God finds us somehow. You see, each of us here today was either Matthew the tax collector just going about our business, and one day we encountered Jesus for ourselves, and he reckoned us and turned our whole life upside down. Other of us are like the tax collector named Zacchaeus, where God had started doing something special in his heart, and one day it all finally came together. But regardless of whether you're Zacchaeus or you're Matthew, you're still a tax collector. That is, you are a sinner far from God who needed the gospel preached and explained to you so that you could come to the revelation of the kingdom of heaven. Read with me in verse 45. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Jesus' point here is clear. That the treasure that these men found was second to none. How do we know that? Well, because they gave up everything for it. 
gave up everything. You want to know what you treasure in life? You want to know what, 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 what you really value in life? Look, just look at what you make sacrifices for. Look at the things you're willing to sacrifice for. Sacrifice for. That will tell you what you truly treasure. As you all know by now, um, death of Kobe Bryant, one of the, I mean, enjoying looking at different things in his life as far as just different articles that have been written about him. Um, but one of my four, four favorite stories written about him during, was during his off-season and vacation. Um, Kobe had an intense workout routine. He, he would wake up 4 a.m. every morning, drive to an hour, about a, uh, to a gym about an hour away, He'll work out until 8 a.m. and then drive back home ready to hang out with the family. This is what Kobe called, and now we call, uh, the Mamba mentality. The, the Mamba is a nickname for Black Mamba, which is mean named after a deadly snake that's always in position to cause deadly harm. When asked in an interview what he hoped to be remembered by, Kobe simply said this. To, he wants to be thought of as a person that's overachieved. Um, he says, to think of me as a person that's overachieved would mean a lot to me. That means I put a lot of work in and squeeze every ounce of juice out of this orange that I could. You see, why Kobe could play his heart out in basketball, why could he do that? Because it's what he, what he treasured. And because it's what he treasured, he squeezed everything that he could out of it for as long as he could. Jesus' invitation to us is not to live with the mamba mentality, but rather with the kingdom mentality. And the kingdom mentality is this. It's a mentality that loves Jesus above everything and everyone else. So much so that our love for other things seem dull, seems lackluster. Kingdom mentality is found in Luke 14, 26, when Jesus says these words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So church, let me ask you a question this morning. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth your suffering? Is Jesus worth your tears? Is Jesus worth your sacrifice? Is Jesus worth your obedience? Is Jesus worth your comfort or lack thereof? Is Jesus worth your joy? Or maybe even your happiness? Is Jesus worth your holiness and pursuit thereof? Is Jesus worth your purity? love what Paul has to say about this in the book of Philippians chapter 3. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives his resume of all the things that he's done in his life. He says this in verse, starting uh, chapter 3, verse 5. He says, I, Paul, was circumcised when I was eight years old. I'm a I was a pure-blood Christian of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. 
I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I am discarded. I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteousness through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want you to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want you to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that no one, no, that, so that no, uh, one, that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. See, having a kingdom mentality for Paul meant that he had to put everything, he had to put Jesus over everything. He had to put Jesus over everything. Ethnic identity, which is a value, but even that submits to Jesus. Educational pedigree is impressive, but it must bow down to the the throne of Jesus. His self-righteousness had its credence, but it failed in comparison to Jesus. Listen to what Paul says. He says, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered being a lost because of Christ. Not because those things aren't good, but actually because those things aren't good enough. This is a mentality and this is a thing that we have to grow in as a church. We don't look at the world and say those things aren't good, but we say in comparison to Jesus, those things are not good enough. Riches, fame, degrees, family, Living a, 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 a wild lifestyle. Temporary happiness that we want to forsake for eternal joy that we find in Jesus. It's a good question. It's time for us to stop and ask ourselves, what are you currently treasuring? What are you currently treasuring alongside Jesus? What are you currently treasuring, treasuring in addition to Jesus? What are you currently treasuring other than Jesus? I think too many of us today would say, yeah, I once treasured Christ like that. I once treasured him like that. I once would give up everything for him. I once would feel, I felt the joy that you're talking about, Pastor. I, 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 I once knew what you were talking about. Here's a dose of medicine that you probably don't want, but we all need to hear. Is that scripture reminds us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. The people and the person that that changes is not because of God. It's because of us. It's because of our priorities have changed. God doesn't change. And the same God that you knew in college that you were on fire for, or the same God that you knew 25 years that you used to get up every morning to study the Bible with, the same God who you saw um, heal your children from sickness, actually while they were laying on on, on on their own sick bed, he's still God and he's still living. And he still has all power. 
problem comes, we don't treasure him like that anymore. We substituted God for something less than, something unequal to. You can reconsider what you treasure by asking yourself these three questions. Where does my mind go during solitude when you don't have anything to think of? Excuse me, where does your mind go during solitude when you don't have to think of anything else? What does your mind naturally go to? What are you constantly and effortlessly fantasizing about and worrying about? What in your life would you rather die for than lose? See, Jesus demands our allegiance because Jesus is the only one who is worthy of demanding our allegiance. Not Jesus and your career, not Jesus and your sexuality, not Jesus and your parents, or not Jesus and your physique, not Jesus and your kids. It's Jesus as your chief chief treasure by a long shot. He's the only one who's deserving to have the preeminence in your life. See, seeking Jesus first helps you have the proper vision and energy to serve and enjoy God's good gifts without making them to become idols. It's not that, again, it's not that those things are wrong. It's not that money is wrong. It's not that education is wrong. It's not that your career is wrong. It's not that sexuality or ethnicity is wrong. But when you have Jesus as your greatest treasure, every other treasure then makes sense. And it can have its proper place. See, those who belong to the kingdom have found joy in Christ, so much so that everything else compared to Christ honestly looks like dung, looks like filth. See, when the kingdom is your treasure, Everything about you changes from the inside out. You give up anything that hinders you from knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Yeah, sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend ends because of your allegiance to your Lord. Adultery, flirting with someone other than your spouse, ceases because of your allegiance to your Lord. Being greedy for more than you need, lying any chance that you get, or stealing for your own personal gain, it stops because of your allegiance to your Lord. It's what my favorite book, Brian Chappell, says in his book, Unlimited Grace. He says, an ultimate love ultimately controls. What you love the most is what you're going to follow, is what you're going to obey, is what you're going to pursue. And if you have a problem of following the Lord as a Christian, it's not on the Lord It's on us asking him to give us a greater love for him than the thing that we constantly forsake him for. And only God can give that love. Only God can provide that love. And he has given it freely through his son, Jesus. He empowers us with his spirit. That even when we don't know what to pray for, the scripture tells us that the spirit cries out 
And it makes known to the Lord the things that we need, even when we can't articulate or even don't know the things that we need. The Spirit of God is praying in us to articulate those things to God on our behalf. Notice in these first two parables, the kingdom of heaven it's like, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in the field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys it. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Notice this. Notice in these two parables that when the, when the kingdom is your treasure, you commit there's no wavering. There's, there's no going in between. When, when the kingdom of heaven is your treasure, you commit to it all the way. I'm thankful that this church, one of my greatest joys of pastoring this church is knowing that we, this church has been founded on those who have given up a lot. Honestly, if not everything, to commit. It's one of my greatest joys. And it's a, it's a foundational piece, not just for us to build on, but it's a foundational piece for us to stand on for many, many years to come. God, help us, allow us to be a people who treasure your kingdom enough to commit to your kingdom work. And not just talk about it, God. Not just fantasize about it, God. But allow our words to lead to action. You see, you commit to King Jesus and his way of living. And some of you are miserable and you don't experience life in Christ with joy because you have not entirely committed to him. You have not sold everything. You're still hanging on to the flesh. You're still hanging on to the area of your life that Jesus is telling you to give up and trust him. And as your pastor and as your friend, my heart breaks for you. It breaks for you. I weep for you because you're missing out on a chance at pure joy. I grieve for you because it's just a matter of time before your allegiance to the things of this world takes hold of you and takes over you. I am sorrowful for you. Seeing that you live a double life before God and before men. Hear James' voice in his great book that he says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Don't be double, don't, don't have double standards. Don't have, don't be a double-minded man with God. Commit yourself to him. Commit your way to him. He will act. I love how Psalm 37 says it. Psalm 37 is our family verse as a family that we're trying to memorize. Yes, it's 40 verses, but we're up to verse 11. We're trying to make progress. I love what Psalm 37 says. It says this, do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and they wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land, feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord 
and he will give you your heart's desire. Commit your way to him. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn and your justice like the noonday. Listen, those who hear this message and who know that you do not treasure the kingdom of Jesus, he gives us a stark warning. And they get, this gives us the second of the two profound truths that is shown in this text today. The first one was that the kingdom of heaven's value is priceless. The second one is that the kingdom of heaven won't include everyone who says that they belong to. Look with me in verses 47 through 50. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collect, it's collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but they threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of this age that angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice that the kingdom of heaven won't include everyone who says that they belong. Jesus gives another visionary aid to help his disciples to understand that the kingdom and its time in its net or the dragnet. In this Argarian culture, they would have an image of a fisherman casting a, a large dragnet into the sea and pulling it up on board. And once they pulled it on board, they would lay the net flat and separate the edible fish from the bad fish and other items that they would have caught. Notice Jesus' point. Jesus' point is this, is that there will come a day of judgment when his kingdom will be purified. In other words, everyone who says they, they are part of the kingdom, they're, they're really not a part of it. Just like everything in a garage is in a car, isn't a car, and everything that is in prison is not a, everyone who's a, in the prison is not a criminal. Everyone who possesses Jesus as Lord isn't a part of his kingdom. Remember, we are to obey God. Tell others about God's grace and goodness, but we cannot dictate who is a part of the kingdom of heaven and who is not. This will be done at the last Day of judgment by those more infinitely more qualified to do this than we are. And one day, just like we saw in last week's parable of the wheat and the, and the wheat and the weeds, there will be a great separation from those who are truly in the kingdom and those who are in the world. I love how Matthew 7 puts this actually. Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5. Listen to this word. He says, Jesus tells his disciples, he tells this to the crowds, actually. He says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard which you judge others by, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. I love this verse, not because it's talking about judgment, but actually because what Jesus doesn't um, tell us not to be discerning, 
He doesn't tell us not to be thoughtful because right after this verse, he talks about a tree that is um, that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. He says, by their fruit, you will know them. You will know someone as a part of the kingdom by the fruit they bear in their life. And notice in trees, you don't just look at a tree for one season. You look at a tree for every season over and over again. And over the long period of time, if you're seeing the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of joy and the fruit of the spirit being manifested in someone's life, you can know that they are a part, they are a part of, have roots in um, with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The judgment that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 is not discernment, it's eternal and final judgment. He says, don't judge so that you won't be judged. Don't place, somewhere, don't place someone somewhere where you don't know uh, where they should be. And I think we can do that in both ways. We shouldn't assume that everyone in here is a Christian, and we shouldn't assume everyone in here is, is not a Christian. Only God knows. And in his timing of judgment, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, he will be the one to know who's really in and who's really out. So what does that mean for you and me? No premature judgment. No premature judgment. And the reason for that is this. It's quite simple. It's because God's grace is able to reach anyone at any time, at any moment. There's never a day or a time. There's never an hour where God cannot reach those with the, with the eternal salvation he provides to his son Jesus. I don't care if you look at someone in this room right now who you know is not a Christian, but they, but they, after hearing this message, bow their hearts and their heads to Jesus and say, in you I trust and everything else I forsake. I, I accept the, 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 the death, the burial, of resurrection that you've given me in your son Jesus, and today I follow him. At that moment, they then are justified before God. And the moment that you saw them before that prayer, and the moment you see them after that prayer, their whole eternity has changed in one moment because of the free salvation that Christ gives us through his son Jesus. Don't premature, don't judge people prematurely. Don't premature judge people to, to hell. And don't give people a pass to heaven because they are good. We see this also in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 it says, it says it this way, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then he will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Another way of saying lawbreakers is you lawless ones, which means sin. In 1 John, he defines, defines lawlessness as sin. So there's two realities to this. We are not to prejudge someone to hell, but we also are not to give people free passes to heaven just because they do good things, because they do good works, because they say the right thing and they have the right theology. That means nothing in front of a, God, a holy and sovereign God who knows how to separate those who truly believe and who tru those who truly don't. You may impress us. You may impress us with your knowledge. You may impress us with, with your knowledge, your knowability of the Bible, but you cannot impress God. And you cannot earn your way into heaven based upon the simple things that you know or anything that you do apart from trusting in his son for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen. 
Notice what these people say when they get to heaven. Matthew 7, 21. They say, excuse me, verse 22. On that day, Jesus says, many. Notice that word. Many people will say this to him. Not just a few, but many. Many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? You may be looking at me, Pastor, what's wrong with that? Those all sound good. You're right, those are good things. But those are not the things that God requires. <laughs> those are the outworking of knowing Jesus. And what they're doing in this, in this passage is something that we are all, all, everyone in this room is prone to do. They put their function above their identity. And they said, God, we have did all this stuff for you. We, we cast out demons, God. We went to church. We went to Sunday school. We even went to Wednesday night prayer service. Nobody does that, God. I should get extra points for that. They go to God with everything that they do. And the only thing that God requires of us is to go before him, before who you are. That, God, I'm a child of the king who's trusting in Jesus for my salvation. That is my identity. And everything else that you want to know or need to know from, about me flows from that reality. If you, cannot start, that you, if you cannot start your identity with being a child of the king, you may not be a part of the kingdom. plead for this, and I'm passionate about this because some of us have deceived ourselves into be believing something that is not even true, that I'm accepted by God because of what I do rather than who I am. Beloved, you are a child of the chosen king. You have been in his mind since the very beginning of eternity. Because the Bible says that, John says in Revelation that I saw a lamb who was slain from the very foundation of the world. That Jesus wasn't God's plan B. He was always his plan A. And Jesus just didn't just die just to die. He died so that a people may be gathered um, unto him, which you have graciously been given the opportunity to be a part of that. The ecclesia, if you will, or the church. Those who have been called out from the world and called as God's chosen, um, chosen possession. His royal priesthood. You are a part of that number. Know who you are. As a child of the king. The last thing I want to share with us before we close is this. That hell is real. Hell is real. It's not some type of fictitious or metaphorical place that is used to scare you to a right relationship with God. And we can only escape God's judgment by treasuring his kingdom and rejecting what you treasure that doesn't line up with his rule. And I hope and pray, I pray as a church that this picture of heaven being real and this picture of our inability to earn God's grace apart, um, not, not our inability to earn God's grace apart from his son. I hope this motivates you to be sent. I hope it motivates you to share about the wonderful kingdom that you have found. You see, sharing your faith is simply telling people about the treasure that you have found. 
now that it's yours. And if you are a possessor of this kingdom, don't go and bury it, but go tell everybody about it. I love the old saying about evangelism. Evangelism is just simply one bread, one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. It's a good model and a good imagery for us to think through. Tell them about the joy that you have in Christ. Tell them about how you stumbled upon this hidden kingdom or how about you were searching for it and God graciously revealed himself to you. Don't be ashamed or embarrassed about the kingdom that God has given because it is worth your allegiance, both now and forevermore. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.